This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What up, guys? Lisa Billiou here, and welcome to another epic episode of Women of Impact. And today, we're diving into a topic that hits home for a lot of women. That new relationship energy that feels good and bubbly until it doesn't. Falling in love? That's the fun part that we all crave. But staying in love? That's a whole different ballgame. Excitement turns into a minefield of dramatic highs and explosive lows that leads to breakups and heartbreaks. So what on earth do you do when the initial thrill fades and things start to feel, well, just ordinary. Well, today, my girl, Dr. Nicola Pera, is back to help you navigate beyond the 70% of relationships that fail. So don't miss out on part two of this powerful conversation with Nicola Pera tomorrow as she reveals the journey of being estranged from her own family and the pain and the healing that comes with it. And before we dive in, guys, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast yet, what are you waiting for? So hit that subscribe button and let's dive into this episode with my girl, Dr. Nicole LaPera. Falling in love can somewhat be a bit easy, but staying in love can feel like it's impossible. So what are the key things that we can start to look out for that can actually be indicators that maybe our relationship is in trouble? Um, I think some of us become really attracted to the hormones and the drama and the roller coaster that comes along with the honeymoon stage of love, I think is how we commonly think of it. And when it then transitions into a relationship or relationships that don't have those really high highs in the beginning, um, I think that's when challenge can occur where we think we're bored, we think maybe this isn't the right person. So in terms of finding our way toward a kind of stable version of love. I think love does feel, it feels calm, it feels grounded. There's a reciprocal give and take of, of support. There's space for individual self-expression. And of course, if you're not feeling that way in your relationships, if there's dramatic highs and lows or just dysfunctional patterns in general, or you don't feel safe to express yourself, your ideas, your perspectives, or to have your needs being met, um, chances are, again, there's nothing necessarily wrong with you, though you're likely repeating patterns that worked and that were adaptive for you at one time, but it might not be serving you in this authentic relationship. So are there several different ways that emotions can lack space, can lock, lack attention, and can result in not feeling that reciprocal give and take of support? And I think one of the most common ones is emotional invalidation or all of the different moments where maybe we share, if we feel comfortable sharing what I'm feeling with the partner. And of course, this is 
beyond just romantic partners, with friends, with family members, pretty much in any relationship. And, you know, maybe we're immediately met with words of we're being dramatic um, or our relation or our emotions are minimized in other ways where it's simply denied. Gaslighting is a very common word. Um, that didn't happen or you don't feel that way or and or you shouldn't feel that way. And I think all of those um, are really common things that we just many of us have gotten used to because that maybe was the dynamic in our childhood home where there wasn't space where we did hear from our caregivers that we were being too dramatic or not to you know, express anger because it's inappropriate for whatever reason, or maybe just outright things were denied to us when in reality we were feeling them and they were true in our bodies. Because I think being aware of what emotions are um, that they actually are physiological sensations that are happening. Um, and I think that, you know, opens the door for the validity of them, even if they're coming from an older story or an older experience that was quite similar to what's happening now. Um, they are still living in our body and, and real, though, of course, within that space and within that self-awareness, once I learn to drop in and notice that my heart rate is getting elevated or I'm feeling that clenching sick feeling in my stomach that, you know, might map onto some emotions, um, understanding, of course, that they might be coming from our past. They might be a remnant of a similar circumstance that we lived or a similar experience that we lived. Um, so saying that to say emotions are real, though it is our kind of job to distinguish between, okay, is this emotion coming because of what my the way my mind made sense of, the story my mind told about what is happening and then questioning the accuracy, right? What, is this actually what's happening? Because our mind is always trying to make sense of what's happening around us. And it all often isn't giving us an accurate representation, but not to say again, that the feelings aren't alive for us. Um, and I always just like to preface that because I, I do think sometimes we think the, or we have the expectation that the goal is not to feel things, to avoid our emotions entirely or to think them away. Um, and that's just simply not possible. So emotions are real wherever they're coming from. Um, dropping in our body, as you'll always hear me speak of, is going to be an important part of that journey. All right, so take me through this scenario. And I'm going to play a bit of devil's advocate here because if it's coming from your body, totally get that. Maybe it's from the past trauma that you've had. And so you show up in a relationship and let's say somebody's saying you're being dramatic. The emotion of the drama, I understand, can be real. But then how do you identify whether your partner's trying to gaslight you or whether you actually are being dramatic and you then have to work through it with your partner to then maybe explain why that emotion is coming up. Like, Where's that fine line between the reality and the emotion? And then how do you, uh, as a partner, discuss that with your, the, your significant other? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what partners offer us, right, the possibility of what they could offer us, I should say, is an unblinded perspective, right? A different kind of vantage point on what's happening. So, right, just taking the dramatic example, right? An over-emotional experience, you know, that might be colored by this past that's not really maybe mapping onto what's happening. Um, so allowing in hearing, I think first and foremost, especially if it's coming from a trusted partner. Now I wanna, again, preface this mm -hmm. with not a stranger on the internet, not someone who's just giving their opinion about us. This is someone that, you know, we have a sense of commitment to or relational security around. In those moments, right, taking their perspective and hearing and being curious because it's never just defer 
to them, oh, I'm being dramatic. You must be, you know, accurate in this. Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously taking what we know of our past experience and dropping into and, you know, exploring for ourselves. well, okay, what is the story that went through my mind that mapped on to this big emotion in my body? And even if it does come to the conclusion that, okay, this was a past experience that is, you know, kind of coming out in this very big over emotional way, it's not mapping on, doesn't mean it's any less real. So even in those moments, um, you know, shifting perspective, allowing in what our partner shared with us, and also possibly asking for support, because we're still feeling the way that we're feeling, even if it isn't an accurate representation of what's happening. And I think some of us too, when we didn't have that space to have our space for our own perspectives, our own emotions in childhood, we could create a kind of dynamic that we bring into relationships where we don't trust ourselves to begin with. So it doesn't even have to be a function of the toxic or non-toxic person. There's a lack of validity that we don't even give to ourselves. We're always deferring, mm. we're always outsourcing, we're always asking what someone else thinks or feels and then taking on their reality for how we should think and feel in any given circumstance. So I, I do think, and I, I touch upon this a lot in the book, Relationships are co-created. Yes, of course, there might be people that are, you know, using our reality or trying to manipulate our reality and our emotions, though I do think that often goes hand in hand with, right, the part we're playing at least being we don't, we're not secure in what we think mm -hmm. and what we feel. And I'm just speaking from my own lived experience of always deferring outward, always asking people for their opinions on certain things, always deferring to how I saw other people reacting emotionally in any given moment. And if I inherently wasn't naturally thinking or feeling that way, I would diminish my own intuition. And I would say, oh, Nicole, you must be you know, inaccurate here because no one else is upset by this. So almost shaming myself out of that. So I just always like to honor um, kind of both sides because typically, again, there's a familiarity that we recreate from childhood. So if we were the child who didn't have that space, chances are we're not gonna have that self-trust inherently and we're gonna continue then to create relationships that might allow in those manipulative behaviors. Mm. So um, going to shame actually, thank you for bringing that up. I think that's a big part of what I've heard from my audience a lot, where people feel that they're ashamed for having a certain emotional response with their partner. Um, and so how do you advise someone like that in that situation to, um, to really put out boundaries and um, really recognize that there's, they should, they, I don't want to, I hate the word shouldn't, right? But really should, they shouldn't have any shame in their emotional response, but take the potential ownership over it. I think even defining shame for what it is, and I'm saying this because there was a version of me that shame was so baked into how I learned to be in my relationships as this achievement-driven person that more or less had no emotional needs because I didn't have that attunement in my childhood, that I was acting in a way unconsciously to even avoid feeling anything shameful by presenting myself as someone who, wait, emotions, me, I'm good. I'm showing up in service of you. There's nothing going on. I'm fine. And it took me years to understand that my, I call it a conditioned self in the book. Mm -hmm. And I introduced this concept of all of these different kind of patterned ways that we show up as, for me, the overachiever. On the other side of that is the underachiever, as the you know caretaker or the hero worshiper, this person who idealizes everyone. But a lot of us, we don't even notice that what we're feeling at its core is shameful. 
I'm too shameful to express my perspective. I'm too shameful to express my emotion. So instead, I don't know I'm even feeling shame because I just be someone who doesn't have those things. So I think defining the root, which for a lot of us, anytime again in childhood that we didn't have that space and the curiosity of someone else to understand us as a unique, different individual, a lot of times we modify ourselves out of that shame, this deep belief that I'm not worthy as I am, I'm not lovable as I am because of what was directly said, you're too dramatic, stop being like that, or what was indirectly done, distance, withdrawal, the silent treatment's a big one when there's disappointment or when someone has a negative reaction. And before long, we register that enough that from that shameful place, this idea that, oh, who I am isn't worthy, I begin to modify. So I think understanding that for a lot of us, especially if we're not being who we are or really expressing our, our true nature or our true perspective or our true emotions, defining it is coming from a shameful place. And then, of course, the journey begins with creating, like you're beautifully saying, space and boundaries, which sometimes begins with my relationship with myself first. Before I can authentically share with you, Lisa, how I'm feeling, I have to be really connected with how I'm feeling. I have to rebuild for many of us a connection with my body so I can attune to all of those different physiological signals and get some clarity so that over time then I can work through the discomfort of maybe disclosing to you that you know I'm feeling badly or, or I'm feeling in need of help or support or I'm feeling grief or whatever it is that I'm feeling. So, And then of course boundaries become a conversation, creating the space so I can self-explore is a set of boundaries and then creating the space that I have now a choice point because what we can't control is how someone will receive or not receive our self-expression, but what we can choose is how we keep our safe ourselves safe regardless of what they do or don't do with the information. Then again, just to play the tape forward, right? If they use it against us, if they bring it up later to manipulate us, mm -hmm. I know you talk about this often, um, right? If they explode and don't create a safe space for when we do want to share, um, then we can, of course, modify our behavior moving forward by sharing with a different person or by removing ourselves from an unsafe situation or a relationship entirely. Mm. And also, I hear a lot of people often get mocked, right, for putting up the boundary in the first place, especially okay. if you've already been in this dynamic, maybe you've been in a relationship for a year or a while, and then you start to do the work internally. You really are noticing maybe some uh, toxic dynamic between you and your partner. You're looking to improve it, so you're doing the self-work, and then you show up to try and improve it but then often other people if they haven't done the work they're going to shame you for trying to create that space or create that boundary we all struggle with change and the reality of it is because we are dynamic you know interdependent mm. interconnected creatures this is why we see this oftentimes in families it's so difficult when one person begins to think differently and do differently quite like dominoes there is an impact whether it's with your romantic partner, your friend group, or within your family structure, everyone's kind of fallen into this pattern of relating. And now if one person's going to either question the status quo or the narrative, or even more so make a new choice to create change, then there is going to be an impact. And sometimes, because while we're wired to change and grow and evolve as species, as creatures, really, there is a drive to the familiar. Change inherently feels unsafe. So if you have a family dynamic or a relational dynamic where the other individuals struggle with you know, navigating their 
stress of change, their emotional reaction to now this new way of being, mm -hmm. maybe in, even the fact that now you're challenging not only your own identity and the role you played, but perhaps their identity and what they come to know of the relationship, right? Now it can get really complicated and people can have really big reactions. And sometimes it comes out as invalidating our change, as teasing, oh, of course, what are you, what are you too good for us now that you can't come around as much or you're not available? in these ways. So sometimes well-meaning teasing or what people think is, oh, I'm just poking fun, is really their attempt at navigating their own discomfort that they're feeling when something is different in their world. Mm. I'm going to be utterly honest. There is little more damaging to your confidence than feeling weak and helpless and just struggling to get the care that you actually need from your doctor. And trust me, guys, I unfortunately speak from experience because when I was struggling with crippling, crippling gut issues about nine years ago now, it took me years, years to find a doctor that not only could I connect with, but a doctor that actually would listen, wouldn't gaslight me and actually take my words and my experience as truth so that they could actually eventually help me heal and not just to give me another freaking pill and then push me out the door. But now, my homie, you don't have to struggle to find the right doctor for you you anymore and that's thanks to ZocDoc. ZocDoc is an absolutely free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and then instantly book appointments with them online. And with ZocDoc, you can actually filter by insurance, location and specialities to find the perfect fit for you, not for your friend, not for anyone else, but for you. Plus, on top of that, you can actually go and read verified reviews from real patients to find the doc that you can actually trust. And typically, wait times for booking an appointment are days, not weeks. Because let's face it, when you're sick, you need to see someone right now. So my homie, do not, I repeat, do not neglect your health. Instead, go over to ZocDoc dot com slash Lisa and download the ZocDoc app for absolutely free. Then find and book a top rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash Lisa. ZocDoc dot com slash Lisa. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How do you then start to break that cycle? Because to your point, if you're just learning this and you're just practicing, maybe you've had past relationships where it's been a repetitive kind of cycle and then, you know, the toxicity, you leave, the, you know, maybe you go back. But maybe you've realized now in this relationship that the signs that, okay, I need to do something different. It's not working. I really want to try and make this relationship work. What can I do? So you start to set these boundaries and that person starts to reciprocate in either the exploding or they give you the silent treatment because that becomes a manipulation tool that then someone uses in order for you to then drop that change that you were going to do or drop that boundary or stay in that relationship. Um, how do you start to actually vocalize what you're doing? How do you address their, I want to say punishment, because it feels like that's mm -hmm. a punishment. Um, and then what would you advise someone does in that situation? Well, I think I love actually that you intuitively started with vocalizing it because 
because we all struggle with change, unexpected change is even more destabilizing. So if we do come to the awareness on our individual journeys that, you know, I am going to, or I need to begin to show up differently in this relationship, it can be really helpful to actually directly communicate that, right? What my intention is and how I will navigate the circumstance or the relationship in its entirety differently. The caveat here being doing so not in an explosive moment, not when we're having an eruption because we can't take it anymore and or our partner is in their reactive cycle or in their disconnected or shutdown cycle. Because anytime our nervous system is activated, that eruption being a sign of flight mode, scrolling around or needing that to get to that work email, a sign of fleeing, um, being shut down entirely, that kind of silent treatment, a sign of that detacher or that disconnection mode. So when we're out of that state, and it sometimes isn't ideal, oftentimes we mm -hmm. want to communicate mm -hmm. it in the heat of the moment, right? Well, I'm going to stop doing this now because I can't take it anymore. It would really benefit us to set the intention and communicate the intention at a calmer moment because anytime our nervous system is activated whatever side we're on if we're the ones activated or if our partner is we're not actually able to hear new information and we're definitely not going to be able to integrate it or to accept it so making that communication can go a long way um, it can take at least the surprise out of now the next time that thing happens when you do show up differently though it's not to say that it's going to completely eradicate that reaction mm. because the other individual, depending on what boundary we're putting up, because now we're really, a lot of us are talking about their own wounds too, right? Moments mm. of when something similar happened or when their mind is telling them that they're being rejected now because you're now not as available and rejection is, is real. I mean, again, we're wired to relate to others, to connect. And there's a lot of research that shows that when we're ostracized or actually rejected from our social group, that it activates a, the pain center in our brain. So now, of course, right, if I think or, you know, I perceive your movement away, your new boundary, whatever it might be, your removal of yourself from a heated moment, if I perceive that as, oh, you're, you're not leaving this moment, you're leaving me, right? Now, again, like dominoes, of course I'm gonna have a big reaction, especially if I'm someone who in childhood was physically or was emotionally left. So communication of our intention, um, standing in that boundary, whatever it might be, even in, and I'm giving just all this information because sometimes knowing where a reaction is coming from, right? Even if it's someone saying something very unsavory to us or shutting us down and hurting us because they distance ourselves, sometimes having understanding that, oh, they're feeling threatened now because my new behavior is different. So that's going to inherently challenge them. It's change. Or if you know of their past, you might know that, oh, okay, they might be feeling a rejection. And it's sometimes assuring them. If one of the boundaries you're setting is, creating distance, especially if you know you have a partner that was physically or was emotionally abandoned in childhood, it might be really helpful to preface that, yes, you might be taking different space to explore yourself, to, you know, kind of navigate your own emotions, to deal with your own stressful overwhelm or whatever it is, it might be helpful to offer an, a line of reassurance. It doesn't mean that I'm any less committed to you or to the relationship, but standing in your ground in that boundary as the embodied action of actually holding that boundary, even if there is explosion or disconnection, of course, within reason, if there's an explosive behavior, actually physically removing yourself is always helpful too. 
Okay, yeah, because I was going to ask you, where's that fine line, though, between showing someone compassion for the trauma that they've had as a child and understanding, okay, this rage comes from a childhood wound, and so I understand, or even just they're having a really hard time at work, so I'm just going to be really understanding. But at some point, that rage is about their reactions towards you, and so it does become then verbal or emotional abuse. How do you start to process that where you're giving someone compassion because I think yes. anybody that's suffering it is true that they're suffering but that doesn't excuse their behavior towards you exactly and so then with all of that being a fact the best thing that we can do do for ourselves is to maintain the boundary or remove ourselves mm -hmm. from that circumstance because again it's like a lot of times we want to demand things especially of children especially of someone who is acting in an abusive way to us right the instinct is to tell them to stop Though again, if they're in this reactive, emotionally driven part of their brain, if that's the only way that they've learned to navigate these big overwhelming feelings, then not only are they not gonna be able to hear us, chances are they're not gonna be able to do anything different because they still have, like we were talking about earlier, those emotions raging through their body and they quite literally don't have an outlet. Though it doesn't mean that we have to be their outlet. So the difference between like a boundary and an ultimatum or a demand really looks like, okay, you, you keep screaming and yelling abusive things. I'm actually going to remove myself from, I'm going to hang up the phone if it's on the you know, on a phone call or I'm going to leave the room or maybe I might have to leave the home entirely um, until you calm down or until there's, you know, a, a more of a, an approach available. But I think keeping the focus on ourselves, which might mean for some of us, we come to the end of this journey and we do have to make difficult decisions to possibly leave or end relationships, especially if they've crossed that line um, into be being abusive, because the only thing that we can do is protect ourselves. And sometimes that means removing ourselves, ending the relationship, and then letting room for all of the complicated feelings. So I think this is another place where we shame ourselves. Right? If we're leaving an actively abusive relationship, whatever that looks like, I think a lot of us have this idea that I should feel nothing but relief mm. on the other side of it. When in reality, I probably feel I probably feel grief. I probably miss certain mm. aspects of this relationship just because it ended, you know, in an abusive manner doesn't mean that I still don't have a love or a care for this person. But it doesn't mean because I used to make this mistake, too. I used to over understand where everyone was coming from and all of the reasons that they were treating me in, in you know, dysfunctional or hurtful or even abusive ways at times. And I didn't leave any space for the impact that it had on me. I almost overrode how I felt about it because I tried to overconsider where they were coming from. And I really had to learn because I didn't have to learn boundaries in childhood. Mm -hmm. I didn't learn how to navigate my emotions. I was actually taught that people do cause and are responsible for other people's emotions. So I took on all of this responsibility without saying, no, people act as they do. Oftentimes, not even anything connected to me at all, connected to their own past experience. And yet it is still my responsibility to create that safety for myself. Oh, okay, so much there. Um, all right, so first of all, I want to say, um, in those moments, a lot of people, instead of the staying true to their boundary, they'll start to make themselves smaller. Yes. And I've heard you really talk about how that um, can be just a like, huge sign that actually there's a potential resentment within that relationship and that can be something that can really break you. And then when I speak to so many people in my audience that, that, that I talk to, they always say that um, making themselves smaller, it feels right in the moment, right? It's like, well, if I just don't press their buttons, then everything 
everything's going to be good. Because to your point, there's still potentially that love or that infatuation or that connection with that person that you don't want to lose. So instead of just leaving or standing firm on your boundary, very often you're just like, if I just, I don't rustle their feathers, everything will be fine. But that becomes a stepping stone over time to you not recognizing who you are. Yeah, absolutely. And that I can make a case, this tendency to squash ourselves, suppress ourselves, make ourselves small was actually a, a nervous system trauma response, typically at a time where we were adapting. There was a value in being so attuned to maybe our caregiver. Um, we talked a little bit about, you know, inconsistently present caregivers, right? So really being attuned to when they were there and what their needs might be in that moment to keep them there. Or if we had an explosive caregiver, right? Noticing any shift or change in their mood and then squashing down anything that we could do to upset them. Or maybe we had a completely withdrawn caregiver, as my mom was quite often, right? Becoming so attuned to what allowed her to move a bit closer. And for me, that was achievement. So I became, as we call it, our nervous system, hyper vigilant. I became so focused. And a lot of times we call that, well, I'm just empathetic. I just feel the world around me. And absolutely, we're all feeling energetic creatures. Our nervous system is always assessing the state of someone else, but some of us have done that to overcompensate. So then we do see that in our adult relationships as being like, oh, well, I just won't say that because I know that upsets this person or, oh, I, I, I won't do this or I'll do more of this because I know that this makes them happy to the extent that we end up watering ourselves down completely. And we wake up in some day, not only feeling resentful, of the world around us, but we wake up not even really knowing who it is that we are and what it is that we even want or need. Yeah, God, that's heartbreaking. Um, and then the other thing that you said is like, of the, the vicious, almost the vicious cycle, you didn't use those words, but the vicious cycle of when you're leaving, I think there is this um, contradictory feelings that a lot of people have where you're like, they were dismissive of me. They were, you know, like you were saying before, they were emotionally invalidating towards me. And so I really, I felt like I had to leave. But when you leave, you end up almost forgetting that part of why you left and all you remember is the love or that one moment, that beautiful time that you once had a few years ago that you're just holding on to and like, see, they are a good person. Um, how do you start to break that cycle? Yeah, and I think that's that's a really common one. Like we can we either overfocus on the negative when we're stuck in it and then we're, when we're out of it, I think there can be a tendency to idealize these small mm, pieces mm. of a person or again back in time maybe at this honeymoon period where things looked and felt differently. So again, as all things, I think it's noticing that you are kind of doing that and over highlighting because again, our, our mind at any point, our brain is taking in, has too much information to deal with, has too many possibilities, narratives, explanations. And really we are focusing typically again, based in our beliefs, what we learned in childhood to focus on. We're highlighting like a spotlight, certain aspects of our experience. So we have the ability once we notice we're doing that. So becoming conscious of, what you keep ruminating or thinking about is this one positive time and what you're not thinking about, right, is all of these other times. So when you notice that you're engaging with that habit, of course, not to shame yourself, it's what our brain naturally does to tend to all of the information, but then you can begin to widen your focus and consciously ground yourself um, while not minimizing how you're feeling, because likely there still will be mm. grief and loss and chances are your world will change in some way. Here's an individual that you're maybe sharing a house with, sharing a space with, sharing a relationship with, and now they're not there. 
maybe part of it is your own identity, right? I'm only used to, right, being in service of someone else and now I'm alone. So there's still grief, very real emotions there, though we can expand those blinders a bit just to keep using that analogy when we notice that we're hyper fixating on one of the parts. And I think a lot of us, the way we've even learned who we are in childhood um, often begins how we had to be mm. to connect with those core caregivers that we needed the most, right? And however it is, and that's how we begin to ingrain these beliefs, right? Well, I am the caretaker of my family because maybe in childhood we did have to show up in, in care of a parent if we were parentified and care of siblings, if maybe for financial reasons, our parents couldn't be physically present and we were the oldest sibling, right? So now it becomes who we are, how we serve others. So leaving relationships really, you know, comes with different levels of, of grieving, of a grieving process. And a lot of us, especially if we've only known ourselves in a relationship, um, I speak to a past version of myself, who was serially in relationship after relationship. Um, since I started dating at age 16, I really didn't spend more than a handful of months outside of a partnership of some kind. So when I did make the commitment after I left my marriage to spend time alone, to live alone, um, that was a big reorganization because I didn't have that kind of identity wrapped up in a relationship. So that was when I was first beginning to grapple with, well, who am I as, as me? Um, and of course that was really then enhanced when I made the decision to step away from my family um, for the better part of 18 months because I only, and that was one of the big reasons why I decided to put up that hard boundary and take space because I only knew myself in relation to my family of origin. So creating space creates opportunities to grieve how we know ourselves, um, and also the whole, I think, that is left with our desire to be in connective experiences with another person. So is the fact that for you, you didn't want to be alone because of that connection with your family, because there's also the other side where I hear when someone's had either a bad relationship, they're like, I'm never going to be with anyone again. Right. And so you've got the two sides where someone's so fearful of being alone that they hop from one bad relationship to the other. But then you have somebody else who has just had a bad relationship and they just swear off ever being in love again. How do we start to work through the experience of dating to find the right person versus being one or the other? Yeah. And to speak to your point of kind of swearing off relationships entirely, right? If, if love and relating ended in wounding, then I think it's a very logical, you know, kind of proclamation to make. Why would I want to, right? Especially if the, the hurt came from our original relationships, right? If we were really hurt in, in our core family, why would we want to make ourselves vulnerable and expose ourselves to that possibility? Because our mind and body, even if we're decades past what had once happened to us, we're still living the memory of it. It's still wired into us. So even if we don't kind of actively bring up what happened, and many of us try to avoid bringing up what happened because it's too painful, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that we're still not a memory of it, wired, looking for the possibility. And for some of us, that means just swearing off any possibility of relationship with another person because that's the only way that we can feel safe enough. Though again, we're at odds mm -hmm. because we still need people to some extent. So even in this act of self-protection, I think we are left with that feeling of, of loneliness and all of then the impact that, that comes around with it. So again, kind of finding our way into what do I want? What do I need? Even if we're in an active relationship, understanding that we still can and need to, I, I would say, create space 
to be an individual within that relationship. Mm. And, and what about conflicts? I've actually heard you say that um, conflict actually can be quite good in a relationship, but um, we've been so taught that if you fight, that it means, oh, your relationship's in trouble. Yeah, and I think a lot of us, again, we learn um, how we learn to engage in conflict, whether it's appropriate or not, or natural or not, really goes into, comes from that, those first experiences with conflict. And there's many families that sweep things under the rug, mm -hmm. um, avoid emotional topics. And that might be what we then continue to do with this idea that talking about anything that's difficult or uncomfortable, let alone engaging in a conflict, is to be avoided at all costs. Or we might have been around explosive conflicts where they could have even ended in violent um, physically violent altercation. So of course now what we're going to want to avoid is conflict, though conflict itself is a natural byproduct of two unique individuals trying to navigate life. I mean, we have different perspectives, different life experiences. We are going to have different emotional experiences to any given thing that's happening in our world. And trying to understand that together, having moments where we don't agree and trying to then plan and negotiate a future that serves both of us inherently there's going to be a moment where we aren't on the same page or there is conflict though becoming aware of what your relationship with conflict is if you are still someone to sweep it under the rug or maybe even avoid sharing things that upset you um, you know never even telling someone that there is a problem which is what i did for very many years because i was so afraid that that conflict would end in what it ended in my in my mom removing her love and connection, which also then meant any moment of distance, I would automatically assume it's because someone was upset or in conflict. When in reality, people could take distance in a relationship for a million different reasons that like you were saying earlier, a bad day at work that have nothing to do with me at all. Yet ultimately that space will indicate conflict. So exploring, is there conflict? How comfortable do you feel navigating conflict? Does it become eruptive and explosive or do you become shut down to it? And again, not to shame any of that awareness that you might find, because again, that's typically a state of nervous system. If I don't feel safe engaging in difficult feelings, expressing difficult feelings, navigating these moments of disagreement, then my nervous system will take over and I'll end up screaming and yelling or distancing myself or saying, no, nothing's wrong. What do you mean? I'm fine. And pretending that something isn't actually wrong when it is. And so being honest in those moments, obviously always assuming that you trust that person to be honest and saying, this is why this is coming up for me instead of like kind of crossing your arms. Um, would you advise in that? Like discussing with your partner, your mode of, uh, of the way that you yes. deal with conflict. Yes, I think, you know, the more aware we can be and the more aware we can share or the more we can share that awareness outside of these conflictual moments and the more attuned we can be to when our partner is reacting from that stress place, mm -hmm. that conflict place, or might be perceiving conflict. And I talk a lot about in the book, um, different markers, different things we can notice in ourselves and in other people, right? Those explosions, the tendency to always pick up my phone and kind of distract myself when uncomfortable conversations happen or to shut down completely. We'll see those same behaviors in our partners. And the more we know about our general conflict style, um, the more than we can equip both people to navigate those moments. But that's not to say it's still important 
to have a conversation at a grounded time later to explore whatever the disagreement was or the differing perspective was or the combating desires were and to come up with a negotiation or a way that we will move forward that can be of service when possible to both of us. Um, so essentially it's learning new conflict skills in our adulthood um, to navigate those moments of disagreement. But first we have to know what we're already doing habitually so that we can begin to create space, which means then navigating difficult conversations sometimes, um, hearing difficult things shared by your partner, um, maybe even having to navigate having different wants and needs in any given moment and trying to find a path forward that can, again, be of service when possible to both of you. I've got a quote of yours that really lays out when this comes up. You can possibly say this to your partner as a line. I need reassurance after a conflict to feel safe. Can you remind me that you still love me even when you're upset? Yeah, that again, for those of us who either conflict was explosive and maybe we heard quite the opposite, that we're not loved, that, you know, my, things might have been told to us in those moments that were good for nothing, get out of the house, right? All of these kind of rejection-based language and or like I experienced the removal um, of someone that we love and need in those moments. So those words can, again, when spoken and the plan coming, you know, or being communicated outside of those moments can go a long way if you are then in that moment of discomfort because, you know, there is upset for whatever reason or there is disconnection for whatever reason to hear that assurance if your partner is able to offer you that and or if you're able to offer that to your partner can go a long way. Now, of course, it's not going to immediately remove the discomfort that you're feeling. Sure. And I just want to reiterate that because sometimes these words are very relieving. And then other times it's, well, I'm still feeling really nervous. I'm still feeling really uncomfortable with what's happening with you. I'm still feeling like I want to connect with you and you're not available for me now, right now. What do I do? Um, so we're still then left to contain or to navigate however it is that we're feeling, which is why I think it's so, so important to make sure that we have support, not only within ourselves, how to navigate big, uncomfortable emotions when someone isn't available, we learn how to self-soothe, but also that we have supportive relationships outside of our primary partners. I think a lot of us put an expectation that one person be ever available and be everything. Um, and I just, that's not humanly possible. So finding the friendships, finding the community, finding the support um, in a helping professional, either somewhere else to go when we're living with that upset, if and when our primary person can't be available for whatever mm. reason. That's so strong. Um, and then, because what I love about that is that you're vocalizing your need. You're not kind of passing the the problem onto them. Like you really are almost like taking ownership over like this is where I am right now. Um, and so, but this is what I need in order for this conflict for, for us to work so that I can hear that you actually love me. Um, but in that moment, when you're vocalizing your need, I don't like to test my partner, but I would like to say in that moment, it is a nice way of seeing how they're gonna show up for you. Do they dismiss you and be like, well, that's ridiculous. Now you can kind of almost think, is that somebody that I wanna be with who just dismisses my needs? And there's no guesswork. Cause I think also a lot of us try to guess what, either what the other person wants or what well, they should know. They should know that I've had this trauma in my past and they should know that I have, you know, detachment issues and that they, they should tell me that they love me. But unless you're saying it, they're never going to know. But in saying it, it gives them the opportunity to either show up for you or not. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I have been a victim to my own they should know beliefs. Mm -hmm. I walked through many relationships with that, this idea that the right person 
would just know, would know how to attune to me, would know, would know what I'm feeling in any given moment or what I need in any given moment, would anticipate that more, even more so, and would show up in service of this unspoken need not to realize that how should they know? They come from a different lived experience. And just like I, when hearing about, you could share an experience that's somewhat similar to something I went through and what's going to naturally happen is I'm gonna relive the experience as I, as I experienced mm. it, right? So I'm gonna say, oh, that was so sad when that happened. When in reality, if I were to ask you how it was, I might not hear sad. I might hear a completely different emotion or a completely neutral. Um, so naturally we're painting our perspective onto other people. And we then can easily fall into that assumption that other people are in our mind, right? Doing the same thing and knowing our exact experience. But the reality of it is where none of us are mind readers. Um, it again comes from this childhood state of dependency where our parents, our caregivers, whoever they were, were our be all end all. It actually was their job to attune and to figure out how we were feeling and to help us explore how we were feeling. And a lot of us reta retain that kind of developmental immaturity and thought mm -hmm. and continue. And I've been guilty of it myself. So I'm absolutely saying like, I'm not beyond that. Um, and we do have then this cycle of, well, you should just know, but they won't know. They will only know from what they experience. And if they didn't have that experience, they have no idea how to know. And they even could have had something similar and it might not have felt the way that it felt for you or their way to feeling better might be something completely different than your way to feeling better. So getting curious, anytime you do notice that idea that they should know, assume that they don't make that communication anyway. And anytime you're assuming you know how someone else must feel instead of assuming, asking, getting curious, well, how was that for you? Or how is that for you? Or what do you need to happen? Even if you think you know your partner, you really might get surprised sometimes that what you thought they needed was not actually what they needed at all. I love that. And you got your book is so amazing. And I love how you talk about there's so much like ownership in it and how you show up in the relationship. And so even everything that we're talking about now in vocalizing your needs, you even say in your book, just because you also say your needs, don't I can't remember the exact words, but it's like, don't be don't pretend that that may not go against their authentic self. And I was like, oh, yeah, I talk a lot about and, and while this is a, a relationship book, um, it really is built on the foundation of for a lot of us knowing and exploring ourselves and what our needs are for the first time, this might be the first shift of focus from, well, wait a minute, it's not about just me showing up in service of everyone around me and what everyone wants and needs. It's actually about me too in this relationship and how can I get so attuned to what it is that I want or what I need in any given moment. And of course not shame myself if I don't yet have that awareness. And then for a lot of us, it means, can I get curious and explore then how I need to meet my needs. Because if we didn't learn in childhood or we learned a habitual way, some attempt we're making, but if it isn't in service of actually helping us feel good, helping us feel connected to other people, then we could do some unlearning. So for a lot of us, it's really getting curious about what it is that, that I want and need first, um, how it is then that I could receive support in a relationship, which will be uncomfortable if we're not used to, receiving that support in a relationship. And the reality might be, you might not be on 
the same page. For whatever reason, the person might not be willing or able, or they might have a different vision for what they want their relationship or their future to look like. Um, so I think, again, the more we can have these conversations early on in a, in a developing relationship, though, of course, it's not to say that if you're in a current long-term relationship that we can't start to build that awareness now. Um, though I think that a lot of conversations that we avoid in the beginning are out of fear. I don't want to tell someone how I really want a relationship to look like. I don't want to tell someone about my past because of what they'll think. Um, I don't want to tell someone about my childhood, right, because of what they'll think. I don't want to share what it is that I want for my future in a relationship because if, if they don't want it, then what will that mean? Um, I think those are the really important conversations to begin early on because the reality might be there might be a misalignment. Someone might want a family structure that isn't something that you want for yourself. Someone might want to live in a way or in a location that isn't what was in your own future. Um, so again, having that awareness though begins with us, mm -hmm. um, empowering ourselves that to make sure our needs are met in a relationship, that means that we have to be really clear on what they are um, and we have to be really clear on what we want. And then we have to be really clear in communicating that and really comfortable then with the possibility that the goal wouldn't be to contort ourselves into what someone else's vision is. It might actually be to create a different dynamic with that person or to separate. Yeah, because that's what I was going to say, because if you're vocalizing your needs, you've done the deep work, you're vocalizing it, you're really open, you're, you're curious, you're asking questions, you're trying to build this dynamic with a partner, and their needs completely the opposite to yours or com conflict with your needs. Now it's you don't want to be necessarily the person that backs down because going over everything that you said, right, making yourself smaller just to fit into this relationship isn't going to serve you long term at all. But then the same goes for your partner. You don't want them to start making themselves smaller and minimize their needs just to make you feel like your needs are important. Absolutely. And, and that's not to say that there isn't a negotiation, a give mm. and take right? A, a, a moving of, you know, a delaying of gratification of a need in a moment, right? Because there, there are at times a partner that, you know, is more in a need of emotional support and a partner that might be more available to give it. And then those roles might reverse in a future. Um, and this comes mm -hmm. up a lot when I think of, I think a tendency that often, often comes up in conflict again, in terms of communication, which is this transactional nature or this kind of scorekeeping, right? Where I'm like, well, I'm not going to do this for you if you don't do this for me, or you did this last time. And I'm just reminding you of this because now you're telling me of something I did wrong. Yeah, well, you do it too. Um, I think we really have to relinquish that there is a reciprocity and it's not always going to be equal in any given moment. Though, of course, getting really clear on what our non-negotiables are mm -hmm. of the areas that we're not willing to compromise, you know, something that's authentically true to us or some space that we want in our relationship to express something, to have separate hobbies or something that we're really clear on in terms of a family structure, wanting kids, not wanting kids, wanting to define a marriage versus not. Um, where we want to live. I just keep kind of reiterating these things that might be a more non-negotiable, but in the world of kind of emotional support, I do think that there's more of a flow, a give and take. It doesn't always feel like when I need it or when you need me, I can be on because if I don't have the resources available and if I have a whole lot going on in my work or in my family or in a different relationship entirely or within this relationship and I'm just overwhelmed, then to expect me to be present, even if you desperately want me to be, is going to be not only impossible, but it's going to build that resentment. But that's not to say that somewhere down the line, right, now the roles have switched, 
and now I am available. But if you're not getting kind of that give and take over time, not in a given moment, then I do think that is something to explore. If you're always on the giving end of support and the person's never available um, or can't meet your needs in it maybe a different way, I think we can get really focused on having needs met in one way and we can lose sight, like we were talking about earlier, where we're kind of selecting what we're looking at. Um, and this came up a lot in my relationship with Lolly because I was so focused on my needs being met in a very um, kind of caretaking way of having food on the table, my dinner ready. And my mom was very, that's how my mom loved me, making sure my dinner was ready and my clothes were washed at all times. And when Lolly didn't naturally do that in our relationship, I very quickly lost sight of all of the other ways that she was caring for me and our shared relationship and reality together because I became so hyper-focused on an expectation built in childhood that wasn't being met. So I think, again, this whole conversation comes together when we expand kind of our awareness. We might see many moments where we are being supported. Um, it might not just look like what we're expecting in any given moment.